You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Our passage for this morning's sermon is Acts 13, verses 13 to 25. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking that you would use your word to transform us this morning. And that the, these pages that we, of the words that we just read on this page, would, that you would open our eyes to Jesus. We want to see Jesus this morning. So we pray that you would show us Christ in his name. Amen. There's a famous quote from The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, where one of the characters says, All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. And then he continues about a promised king. He says, From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. And this kingly promise was spoken about a specific character in the book. And when you meet this character at the inn of the Prancing Pony, no less, it's not uh, who you would expect. It's a character by the name of Strider. That's the name given to him. And he is, in fact, the heir to one of the most powerful thrones in that, in that series. And he's called instead one of the wild folk, a ranger. The fact, that, the fact that he is a king is completely unexpected, though he is really cool. 
And surely that same unexpected feeling overcame Paul's audience in Antioch of Pisidia. They were about to hear about a king, one that they didn't expect. Look down at verse 13. Here's a little bit of the setting. We heard last week how they started their first missionary journey. Now Paul has traveled by ship. He's traveling by ship from uh, Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, up to the southern Turkish, Turkish coast. So it is Perga. And it's there in Perga that Mark, John Mark, leaves for Jerusalem. Now Luke doesn't give any comment here on why he leaves or what's going on, but later in Acts 15, uh, we learn that it, this, his departure becomes a source of disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. The rest of the party moves on from Perga to Antioch in Pisidia. This Antioch lay about 100 miles to the north from Perga. That'd be like walking from Minneapolis to Eau Claire. Thanks, Ben. <coughs> but you had to cross the tourist mountain range to get there, so it wasn't an easy trip. The route was barren, treacherous, often flooded with swollen streams, and notorious for bandits. So you remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he describes some of the sufferings he went through. So I would imagine some of those happened on this journey. He says he endured dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, and though many sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and in cold and exposure. So this is their journey from Perga to Antioch. This Antioch is one of the many ta t uh, towns you'll hear in the New Testament and in the ancient world that were called Antioch. I think there's like 14 to 17, somewhere in there. It was a Roman colony. It's not to be confused with where Paul and Barnabas are coming from. Roman colony, and it was the seat of military and civil authority in South Galatia. So perhaps this is some of the audience that received Paul's letter of the to the Galatians would be here in this city. It's a cosmopolitan city on a major trade route, so it makes sense for Paul to go there because it's very strategic for the gospel. And it was known as having a high Jewish population, which leads to what they do next. On the Sabbath day, it says, the text says, Paul and his companions go into the synagogue. This was typical of Paul. And it's interesting because this is Luke's account, and it's kind of an illustration of when we read what Paul, what Paul went into a synagogue, and we read that, we can kind of see this is the type of thing that he would do there. So after the reading of the law and the prophets in the synagogue, which would have been normal, they receive, this party receives an offer from the rulers of the synagogue. When the rulers of the synagogue saw Paul, something gave him away. They could tell that he was a teacher or a rabbi. And so they invited him to preach. That's basically what the word of encouragement means. It's a sermon. Now that would have been the normal practice for them to invite someone from the outside to come preach. But what they're about to hear is not normal. The message Paul preaches is about the promised king who brings salvation through his death, resurrection, and resurrection. His point is, Paul's, is that Jesus fulfills God's promises to David. He is the promised king. 
And the sermon follows three stages, preparation, proclamation, and application. And today, we're only going to look at the first stage, so the preparation stage, verses 13 through 25. And before we walk through that, I I want you to consider the backdrop of the Old Testament. So if you look at verse 23, you realize that that verse would have been a bombshell. Paul says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So from cover to cover, the, the Bible is full of promises. From its early pages, the God of creation promises that there will one day be a coming kingly figure who will deliver God's people, a royal seed. It's in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. So it's the promise that led God's people all throughout the Old Testament to long for a coming ruler. And yet ruler after ruler in Israel's history failed to live perfectly and obediently under God. And so year after year, there's no king in Israel, even though there's promises about a king, even though there's rules about kings. But even then, the promise remained. It wasn't until hundreds of years later that the Hebrew people asked God to give them a king. God gives them Saul, who by earthly standards is a great choice. But it's clear early on in Saul's uh, kingship that he won't be the perfect obedient king. Instead, God wanted a king whose heart was devoted wholly to him. And so David becomes king in Saul's place. Now, King David, he's one of the more well-known figures in the Bible. He's mentioned a thousand times in the scriptures. Perhaps he is the most complex or multifaceted character other than Jesus. The amount of pages dedicated to telling his story outnumbers any other character except for Jesus. He rose to be king from humble beginnings. He epitomized what it meant to be a king. He was a shepherd, fugitive, politician, poet, musician. He was a prophet, a warrior, a friend, a lover, a father, a sinner, and of course, a king. David is a character who the biblical authors revere more than any other character. His success as a king is unequaled in the annals of Israel's history. So much so that later generations tend to idealize David. He becomes the standard that every other king is compared to. And Israel never had another king quite like him. And it's to David, this king, that God makes a covenant promise. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises to David an eternal royal seed that is a lasting dynasty, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that would never be taken away from his house. Someone from David's line will sit on the throne forever. A descendant who will be like God's son, that's what the text says, who will never die. And it will be a kingdom that will bless all nations of the world. And following this promise in David's line, in the Old Testament, his line never quite embodies this promise. David's kingly children and grandchildren only serve to highlight the need of a greater and a better king. And you can see all throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, 
that God's people pinned all their hopes on David's future descendant. That's really what the Old Testament is about. It's about a coming messianic king. So with that backdrop, without that backdrop, you fail to really recognize and grasp what Paul's audience is going through in this text. They would not have expected what Paul was about to say there. Paul's hearers would have assumed that the Old Testament promise of a king would be different than what's presented in the New Testament. So much like encountering Aragorn in the Inn of the Prancing Pony, you wouldn't first recognize the king. They didn't recognize their king because of their faulty assumptions about him. So Paul shows them that Jesus is indeed the promised king. And he's better than anything they could ever imagine. So I want you to see that Jesus is the promised king, just like Paul shows. He shows it in three ways. First, in that Jesus mirrors God's loving promises or purposes. Second, Jesus embodies God's righteous reign. And third, Jesus fulfills God's saving promise. So his loving purpose, his righteous reign, and his saving promise. So first, Jesus mirrors God's loving purpose is in verses 17 through 20. And here's the idea. When you look at the life of Jesus, the New Testament says that who you see is the God of the Old Testament. When you look at the life of Jesus, who you see is the God of the Old Testament. What you find there is God has always been lovingly and patiently showing grace to his people. Every choice, action, and promise is grace. And we see this in Paul's presentation because he gives us six periods that he recaps of Israel's history. And each one shows God's loving purpose. Look at verse 17. The first one that he, that he shows us is the patriarchs. Paul says, he chose, God chose our fathers. So he's speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. So who is he referring to? Now he's referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the language here is the language found in Deuteronomy. And we find as, as, as we read Deuteronomy that God is the initiator of the relationship with his people. And it's certainly alluded here is Abraham, that God chose and picked Abraham. And the relationship is a result of God's loving election. Deuteronomy 4.37 says, The Lord loved the patriarchs and chose them. Deuteronomy 10.15 says, God set his heart on them and loved them above all other peoples. And why did he choose them? Because he loved them. The point is, God gave particular promises to a particular people. See, God favored Israel, and even though he found nothing in them to deserve his favor, he chose them. This is grace. What a loving father, that through his choice, he would bless the world. So that's the patriarchs. The second period is that of the exodus, in the end of verse 17. So Paul highlights that it was God who made them great in Egypt. The people, that is, they grew in number and in power. And then it was with God's uplifted arm that he led them out of captivity. That is, God shatters their captivity. With superhuman strength, he uplift, with uplifted arm, he drew them out of Israel. 
So you have the patriarchs, you have Exodus, then he moves next to the, in the biblical narrative to the wilderness wanderings. It's a third period marked by God putting up with Israel in the wilderness for about 40 years. And this shows the love of God that despite of Israel's grumbling and complaining, I mean, it doesn't take long for them to worship idols, that God carried them despite that according to his purposes, like a father carries a child. He was patient in the midst of their unfaithfulness. Next in the narrative, the conquest. He gave them their land, verse 19, as an inheritance. So God delivered and gave the people the promised land. The conquest is presented here as an action of God. God is true to his promises and his loving purposes include Israel's land as an inheritance. So if God is true concerning the land, will he be true concerning the future king? All this, the time in Egypt, the desert, the conquest, it took how long? 50 years? 100 years? 200 years? Now he says it all took about 450 years. God was patient over those years. He mercifully and lovingly carried his people. The fifth period is that of the judges. It's found in the middle of verse 20. And Paul barely mentions it. All he says is he gave them judges. But even this is a sign of God's grace. God appointed judges, or the word is saviors, to defeat God's enemies and restore peace to the land. Of course, we know it never lasted long. It was not an adequate solution. The people are left longing for what? Or who, I should say? A king. Judges ends with, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So you have the judges. The next, the prophets. So this is the time of the prophets of the final period, and Paul mentions Samuel the prophet. So it's the prophets who most clearly pointed to Jesus as the king and as the one who would be the primary agent in God's saving purposes, his loving purposes. Samuel transitioned to the kings, and he was the one who professed that Christ would one day come. Who is the subject in all these verbs? You notice that? Who is the subject? It's God. He is the one initiating and showing grace to his people. These six periods review how God loved his people and acted as their savior according to his purposes. Now, have you ever thought about the life of Jesus in relationship to Israel's history? Jesus acts as a mirror here in our text because his life recapitulates Israel's history. From his time as a boy in exile in Egypt to his time in his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus' life reflects, it shows us the loving acts of God towards Israel throughout the Old Testament. In fact, all the loving acts of God in the Old Testament point ahead to the greatest expression of God's love in the person of Jesus. That is, he sent his only son to die for the sins of the people. That is, God always has and always will lovingly give himself for his people. It's not new in the New Testament. He gives himself. Now imagine you're a modern Christian struggling to find the importance 
of reading through Exodus or First and Second Samuel or Jeremiah or Leviticus, do you see how you might miss the importance of what Paul says here in Acts? It's important that we see that Paul understood God's history as the history found in the Old Testament. That is, when he, what he's doing here is he's summarizing the Old Testament as he summarizes the history of Israel and the history of God's loving purposes. Paul saw the Old Testament scriptures as true, as authoritative, and as supremely important for, for knowing the value and the worth of Jesus. Some would argue that the Old Testament is primitive or outdated, that it shows it's not God, but the evolution of man's ideas about God. Or perhaps even today there are, uh, pro- there's a prominent megachurch pastor, a name that you would recognize, who encourages uh, or who expresses the same feelings that many people have about the Old Testament. This is what he says to church leaders. Quote, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? Unquote. He says, this is necessary because, quote, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. So put simply, when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. So he suggests that we unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament. And I want to suggest nothing could be more damaging or unhelpful or unapostolic than severing Christ from two-thirds of the Bible. What we find here is Paul's insisting that we should see Christ as the Scripture's main subject. Isn't that what Jesus claims in John 5, 39? The Scriptures bear witness about me. So the Old Testament summary we have here is valuable because Christ is there. Now, it's possible for many of us to have misunderstandings about God that stem from severing these two testaments. Perhaps you've fallen into a common assumption that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and punishment, while the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Paul shatters that idea. I mean, God is a God who loves and saves his people, and he always has. Again and again here, we see that God saved his people. Or maybe more personally, you can drift into thinking that God is always out to get you. Man, he's always out to see when I slip up and to be there and punish me. That one day, God will just grow sick of my unfaithfulness and sin. Maybe you find yourself in shame and guilt and you don't feel the sweetness of of a relationship with Christ anymore. And it's hard because these feelings can be strong, but this text reminds us that the God of the Bible is described as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. For those in Christ, there's no more wrath reserved for you. Jesus paid it all. So let his loving purposes restore the joy of your salvation. This is a reminder, too, for the kids in this room. Those who hear the stories of Sunday school over and over again. And that is this, that those stories are true. You know, the Incredibles or Harry Potter, they're though awesome, they aren't true stories. 
But the stories in, the sun, in Sunday school, they are true. They actually happened. And not only that, they're part of a big story. And God is the author of that story, and Jesus is the hero. And we should never forget that. It's a good reminder for us, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, people who teach children, that before we turn to any other endorsement, we should first show them Jesus. So God's loving purposes are seen in these first few verses. And it's this, that Jesus mirrors those loving purposes. Jesus is just a reflection of the God of the Old Testament. That's number one. Number two, Jesus embodies God's righteous reign. Jesus embodies God's righteous reign. And this is verses 21 and 22. And the idea is this, that the son of David is the obedient king, the king of kings, the new and better David, the one to rule unlike all other kings, who would perfectly submit to God and lead his people. That is, he's the visible representation. He embodies the righteous reign. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. And he is God's reign incarnated. That is, he is a reflection of God's reign. He's the vice regent. And that's because that's what the king was always supposed to be in the Old Testament. They were always supposed to be a, a vice regent to God, the great king. So look at verse 21. Then they asked for a king. So this desire, God knows, if you remember, is rooted in uh, their desire, the people's desire, not to trust God, but to be like all the other nations around them. So despite that, despite that the fact that it's a rejection of God's kingship, what does God do? He gives them Saul. Verse middle of verse 21, God gave them Saul. Yet Saul did not obey God. The king was always meant to fulfill and represent God's righteous and just leadership over his people. And Saul, right away, off the bat, decided to go his own way. So God removed him. And Samuel, the prophet, says to Saul this, Because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So what did Saul reject? He rejected the word of the Lord. God told him what to do, and he did not do it. See, kings were always meant to follow the word of the Lord. And that leads to David, who we've talked about briefly already. Paul says, God raised up David to be their king, which underlines David's role as the model ruler sent by God. God raised up David, and it echoes the resurrection. David was Yahweh's man. And again, David was the best king that Israel had, ever had. And the reason is given here is because he obeyed God. God says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. At last, Israel has found the kind of king that God wants, a man after his own heart. He will carry out all of God's wishes. And God is saying, finally, a king who will fulfill my plans and not his own. Still, we are very aware, right, aren't we, of David's failings. But it's good to remember that he was a righteous king. Not a perfect king, but he was a righteous king. That is, he was not the promised king, 
But the time of fulfillment was to come. There was someone who was greater and better, a better king to come. And how do we know that David is not the promised king? Well, jump ahead. Look at verse 36. Verse 36 in your text, um, it says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So how do we know? Well, because he died. And we know David's not the king. So God's reign would fall then to a greater and better David. And this happens by means of the resurrection. Look at verse 37. Jesus, whom God raised up, see the words, did not see corruption. As Jesus is the king who never sinned, obeyed God's will, followed perfect righteousness, he died and was raised, never to die again. So he embodies God's righteous, perfect reign. So God's, reign, God's rulers were always meant to show God's reign and to carry out his rule. And in this way, David was a type of Christ. So he pointed to Christ in ways that we would recognize. That's what a type is. Remember, Christopher Wright summarizes it something like this. When you see somebody do something that you recognize as the way they always act, you say what? Ah, that's typical John, you know, or that's just typical of him. So they're acting true to the type. So this is what you come to expect from the person. And the authors of the New Testament recognize that the ways that David's heart was after God, his commitment, his psalms, to following God's will, represented Jesus, pointed ahead to Jesus, and shed light on what Jesus would look like when he came, a new and better David. Perhaps as you read through the Old Testament history of Paul, you think, why in the world did he include Saul? And Saul doesn't seem important. Some people suggest it's because that's his uh, Hebrew name, Saul. It's a good question. I think it's to represent the earthly-minded rulers and kings. Like those who seek to rule independence of God. Saul acts as the opposite of David and Christ. Saul does not live in obedience under the, the king, the great king of the universe. Nor does he honor God. But even in that, God does what to him? Removes him. It's another reminder that God is the God over, is the ruler over all other rulers, good or bad, whether it was ancient Rome or today in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world, God rules the nations. I also think this is a good reminder, especially the part about David, for us as regards to leaders at Redeemer. That is, our leaders are meant to embody Jesus as servants of his lordship, shepherds under his direction. Not outward, not like an outward facade like Saul, but inward rule of the spirit like Jesus. So think, do we discern our leaders? Do we base our leaders on worldly standards of success and whatever? Or do they live by the spirit? And then for all of us, the phrase of whom God testified. 
and said, I have found in David, son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Does that not leave you thinking, can God testify that about me? Can he say that about us? Am I all in when it comes to God and his will? Or would he say that I embody the gospel or I embody his reign? Or would he say, no, he's all about his own kingdom? That's a question I think all of us can consider this morning. So we have shown, so Paul shows us that Jesus mirrors God's loving purpose, number one. Number two, that he embodies God's righteous reign. And the third way is that Jesus fulfills God's saving promise. Jesus fulfills God's saving promise. And this is verses 23 through 25. So remember, God promised a king. And this king he's showing is the climax of biblical history. You can kind of feel it. And he's leading up to the kingship. He gets from David and he jumps right to Jesus. So Paul is claiming that history has always had a focus. It's always had a destiny right from the beginning. And it was this promised king. So Paul now delivers the punchline in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. You just wonder, what were their responses? How did they react? I kind of think it's like me standing up here and saying, hey, listen, everyone, Jesus has come back bodily, and he is here at Redeemer. It's kind of like shocking claim. They would be amening, you know, with the two or three people here at Redeemer that amen. They would be amening along the way as Paul preaches. And it's something they probably heard in the synagogue many times. And then suddenly there is a bout face. There is a turn where Jesus says, you no longer have to wait for the king. You know, they'd expect him to say, there's this promised hope in the future and we're awaiting this great ruler, a better David. And that's what the hope is in him. We're looking forward to him, and Paul says, no, he's here. He has arrived in the person of Jesus. He's here. I'm sure that they would have heard about Jesus. You know, they would have heard uh, some uh, rumors had reached Antioch. But perhaps they thought, how can this Jesus that we heard about be the Messiah? So Paul gives them two evidences in these verses. First, Jesus is David's offspring. Jesus is David's offspring. God brings Jesus as a savior to Israel according to the promise. And that promise is probably referring to the promise in 2 Samuel 7, 12. And God says this to King David, I will raise up, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So the prophets spoke about David, or a future David, a messianic, the Messiah. Think about the anointed one. That's what a Messiah means. A king was anointed. The Messianic king, a royal title. He would come one day and save and restore Israel. So once again, just like he did in, in the patriarchs and Exodus and the wilderness, God intervenes in history by providing salvation for his people. And the connection it, Paul makes is twofold. David prefigured Christ, which you've already considered a little bit. And then also, Jesus came as the Messiah to sit on David's throne. He's brought the king. True king, son of David, perfect king, king of kings, no greater king is there. Paul proclaims this to them. 
that all that Jesus claimed, all that you heard that he claimed, is true. The second evidence is maybe it doesn't hit us as natural. Uh, and that is the witness of John the Baptist in verses 24 and 25. So you might think, why does Paul bring up John the Baptist? You know, how does he point to Jesus as king? That's the argument up to this point. It's because he came and he prepared the way. So how do they know that Jesus is king? How, did, how were Old Testament saints supposed to know that Jesus was com- or the Messiah was coming? It's because there was supposed to be a forerunner, a messenger that came beforehand. So again, everyone in that synagogue probably had some idea. They had heard of John the Baptist, and generally he was thought to be a prophet in this time. So Paul, he goes to turn to that, and he says, John the Baptist, that messenger, he was the forerunner for the Messiah. How? Well, first he preached a baptism of repentance. That is, he called the people, prepare. How you prepare is through repentance. And then you be immersed in water as a way of showing that true repentance. So he's preparing the way. Second, John's ministry tells us that we should expect the Messiah soon. So he's coming. As John was finishing up his course, Paul says, what do you suppose, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. It's not me. So they may have thought maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah. No, he says, it's not me. No, behold, after me is coming, the sandals is coming the Messiah, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul knows his audience generally thinks of John the Baptist, what they generally think of John the Baptist. So he quotes John emphatically, I am not he. In, In fact, not he, I'm instead infinitely inferior to him to the degree that he says he's unworthy to do this menial task of untying his sandals. So Jesus, John the Baptist, pointed to Jesus and he's worthy because he's the promised messianic king. Truth is, God always keeps his promises. If I were to ask everyone in this room, have you broken a promise? we'd all have to admit, yes, I've broken promises. And the reasons that we break promise, you know, could be sin, but uh, it's also just that we're limited. We're limited in our ability and our knowledge. But that's not true of God. God is not limited. He knows everything and he's all-powerful, which is why when he makes a promise, he is able to keep that promise. And this text is showing us again that God keeps his promises. And what that should do in us is, is instill in us a confidence that, yes, God keeps his promises. He always does. That day, those listeners found in Jesus more than they would have ever expected. He exceeds all expectations. He was not only the offspring of Abraham, but he was the I am of Abraham. He was a greater Moses. He accomplished, he accomplished a greater exodus. He was a true and greater Joshua, for he conquered sin and death. He's a greater prophet than any prophet before him. He is a righteous judge and king, and his fulfillment is he fulfilled every promise, and especially the promise made to King David. So God keeps his promises, and yes, in his promises, he even fulfills them above and beyond our expectations. 
So Jesus is the promised king, and the three ways are he mirrors God's loving purpose, and he embodies God's righteous reign, and he fulfills God's saving promise. In all this, he is a sufficient savior. But maybe, like the hearers then, you think, well, why do I need a savior? Why, why do I need a savior? It's possible that, like Paul's audience, your presuppositions about God and about Jesus are so off-based that you fail to see the true value of Jesus. Perhaps, like his listeners, you either don't think you need saving or you have a completely misunderstanding about what salvation is. I want you to see the hope here. I want you to see the hope That is, we have a mirror, too, in this text. Why do we need a Savior? It's because we are just like Israel. We are cut from the same cloth. It is our sinfulness and our own short memories. We forget and turn in idolatry. And we need God's grace just like they did. Consider again the people of Israel. From the very beginning, Israel failed again and again and again. Think about the patriarchs. They were not the most upright people. Yet God chose them, saved them. After the exodus, it's almost immediately the people turn in idolatry, grumbling and complaining, and yet God continued to deliver them. Think about the time of judges was filled with sin, debauchery, and idolatry. People forget God, and yet he sent them saviors. There's not much good about the time of Saul, and yet God gives them David. God is a God of grace. Israel did nothing to deserve God's grace. They failed repeatedly over and over and over again. So stop and think, don't you see that your story is Israel's story? It acts as a mirror for your own sinfulness and your cycles of sin. And we, like Israel, have no claims on God. And that's why we need his grace, and that's why we need him to come save us. And here's the hope, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us. To us. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. That is the universal message of salvation that was first to go to the Jews and then to the Gentiles has come to us. In Minnetonka, the ends of the earth, it has made its way to us. Is this news to you? You know, is this good news to you? Right now, your life could be, you could be here, and your life could be, is, is, in fact, ruled by someone or something. And perhaps this morning you're feeling crushed under whatever is ruling your life. And you feel lost. You've failed again and again to live up to God's standard. Well, this morning you've been introduced to a king a king who is loving and good, 
who is righteous, and he is a king who saves. And to come under his kingdom is not slavery, but freedom. Paul says, he goes on, he says in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to you. And by everyone who believes in him is freed from everything that they could not be freed uh, by the law of Moses. So you see that Jesus is the king who's not restrictive or oppressive or a tyrant. He offers forgiveness and freedom. He can do this because he conquered sin and death. He was the obedient king, even to death. Won't you turn to him today? Let's pray.